Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. Today on the program, Wyoming's Republicans are reacting to Liz Cheney's removal from House Republican leadership. I'd much rather have uh, a strong conservative in that position that's going to represent the will of their constituents instead. Lots more wind development has been moving into the state, and that's led to a lot of conflict in communities. All I want is one-mile setbacks. Is that really a lot to ask? One regulation. And we will speak with a Department of Health official about Medicaid expansion and whether the state could develop its own plan. Hard to think of a financial and budget situation where the state uh, could really make that work to the same scale. Join us for those stories and more on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck. Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney was removed from her leadership position as the number three House Republican on Wednesday for criticizing former President Trump's ongoing lies about the 2020 election. Wyoming Public Radio's Catherine Wheeler spoke with Republicans across the state on how they feel about Cheney and her future. Lots of Republicans are upset with Liz Cheney. That's pretty clear from the state Republican Party's vote to censure her after her vote to impeach former President Trump. And after continued criticism of the former president, House Republicans voted her out of her leadership position. Gillette resident Shelby Bachtold is one of the people who disagrees with Cheney's actions. Bachtold says this isn't the kind of representation Wyomingites are looking for. I think she handled herself in a very poor way. I think, and I'm thanking God that finally the Republicans stood up and said, this is not okay. This is not how you act. This is not how you represent your side, us. Bob Ferguson, who lives in Matitsi, says the reason why people are pushing back against her is getting lost in a Trump versus Cheney war. Her position as a leadership role as head of the caucus is to build unity. You can't possibly build unity if you're sitting there on a weekly basis bashing all, you know, 50 million people that voted for President Trump. But others haven't minded Cheney's outspokenness. Republican Randy Oakry lives in Gillette. I guess the way I look at it is my voice gets pretty watered down the further up you go. So I try to look at people who have similar values and and who kind of support a good virtuous system. And so part of that support in the laws and the Constitution. And and I think Liz has done a great job at that. Cheney had her critics when she was first elected in 2016. Much of that centered around the fact that she moved to Wyoming from another state to run for office. Charlene Camblin says she wasn't a fan, but Cheney's strong conservative voting record in Washington quickly won her over. What I really appreciate about what Liz has done is she has supported the industries that are critical to Wyoming, you know, our energy industry. She has championed that on every turn. Camblin lives on a ranch in northern Campbell County. While she says she didn't agree with Cheney's vote to impeach Trump, Camblin also says the former president's rhetoric is not productive. We need to focus back on the policies, on the platforms. That's where I wish that we were at, is that we would just move on from this and focus on on becoming more cohesive and working together. Wyoming only has one representative in the House, and having a powerful congressional delegation is especially important to secure money and other priorities. Voters like Camblin worry the state will lose clout if someone new comes in. Don't underestimate that Liz still has a lot of support in this state because we value her knowledge and what she what she knows how to get things done. Um, you can call it the swamp all day long, but it still exists and you still have to be able to navigate it. Outside of her impeachment vote, most Republicans admit they've been happy with Cheney's voting record. But Bob Ferguson says he has no problem with getting someone new in the position. 
it would be great to have a representative from Wyoming in a leadership role, but I'd much rather have uh, a strong conservative in that position that's going to represent the will of their constituents instead. But it's clear the fight over Cheney's actions is also about the identity of the Republican Party at both the national and the state level. Randy Oakry. I think we're kind of stuck on those uh, extremist views right now. And I, I think you can see that at the national level, like with what's going on with Liz. And you can see that at our, our state level with what's going on with our Wyoming GOP. Uh, and I, I think that's a really dangerous place to be to try to grow uh, our party and, and get under the big tent. And that debate will be sorted out in next year's election. With the slew of candidates lining up to face Cheney, Republicans will be able to formally show where they stand. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Katherine Wheeler. The pandemic delayed weddings, concerts, and plenty of other life events. But for many, it also delayed justice. The Mountain West News Bureau's Madeline Beck looked into courtroom delays during the pandemic. Christopher Gauntlet was incarcerated at the Washoe County Sheriff's Office in Nevada for 525 days waiting for his trial. A lot of stuff that happens in there that's not right, but stuff I could do about it, so I had to stay in there. It, it, it hurts, you know. Delays came from pandemic lockdowns, but also when a witness got COVID-19. Gauntlet's court date got pushed back again and again. It was kind of like miserable, you know? A lot of stress, a lot of pain. At the same time, Gauntlet says COVID-19 was all around him. They actually moved me out of a cell that was infected and into another cell that was infected. He said people tried to get him to take a plea deal, but he refused. He wanted to fight his charges, which included domestic battery and child abuse or neglect, among others. After more than a year behind bars awaiting trial, he was found not guilty on all counts. I stuck to my faith and stuck to everything and just waited it out and went to trial and won. But even after release, Gauntlet's life didn't go back to normal. He no longer had a job or a home in Nevada anymore. Unfortunately, his case likely isn't unique. I think there's probably a Chris Gauntlet in every jurisdiction throughout the country right now. That's John Arascata, the Washoe County Public Defender in Reno, Nevada. He says the pandemic has been a massive strain on the court system. His jurisdiction is seeing significantly more trials this year as they try to make up lost time in 2020. But Arascata believes courts did work hard last year to keep things moving. He was on a committee looking into safely resuming jury trials. And we actually were able to have three jury trials during the month of October of 2020. Uh, but then the surges hit. And then things shut down again there until April. But that wasn't necessarily the case across the region. Trial delays vary depending on your state, county, or even courtroom. Some for days or weeks, others for months. That meant some areas have a long court backlog and others don't. In Idaho, state officials say the number of pending criminal cases increased by 22% from January 2020 to January 2021. There's a backlog in parts of New Mexico, too. And in Colorado, the judiciary reported between four and five times the number of criminal jury trials scheduled this year than usual. Montana doesn't even know what its backlog looks like. Well, we definitely have a backlog. That's Brian Smith, a public defender administrator there. There isn't really an agreed-upon way to measure that, which has been frustrating. But not having objective, agreed-upon backlog data makes it hard to ask for resources, like more judges or staff. I don't, I don't have a good solution. I mean, the problem, though, is there. And, and we need resources. And my fear is, because we can't measure it, we're not going to allocate the resources. But one state in the Mountain West is different from the rest. Wyoming doesn't seem to have much of a court backlog at all. I think we're doing pretty well compared to what I hear about other states. Wyoming Supreme Court Chief Justice Michael Davis points to a few reasons for that. For one, local court flexibility. Unlike other courts in our region, Wyoming was able to keep court processes moving, even though they couldn't hold trials for a few months. And then there's Wyoming's size. They had 3,700 judges in Texas. And we've got 53 from the circuit court through the Supreme Court. So your ability to communicate and manage things is much more immediate and uh, personal and direct. 
Wyoming was also lucky. When the pandemic hit, the state had just about finished a massive project getting video systems and software up and running in courtrooms, and that made it possible to do more work remotely. Of course, that doesn't guarantee a backlog-free Wyoming going forward. The judiciary there is facing budget cuts as the state grapples with an economic crisis. Big cuts would mean fewer judges and staff, and that could eventually mean a longer wait for your day in court. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Madeline Beck. When we come back, we will do a deep dive into the pros and cons of Medicaid expansion from the position of the Wyoming Department of Health. This is Open Spaces. This time on Carbon Valley, one entrepreneur wants to help the climate by using carbon dioxide to create a new fuel for planes. We eventually get to the point where there's no more fossil fuels being extracted for aviation, and we lock up that billion tons into a circular fuel. We explore how this vision for carbon capture squares with Wyoming's own. I'm Cooper McKim. Find Carbon Valley under podcasts at wyomingpublicmedia.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. After finally passing the Wyoming House of Representatives this year, a legislative committee has set the stage for Medicaid expansion to be debated during an upcoming special session of the legislature. Stefan Johansson is the deputy director of the State Department of Health and explains to me why, after seven years, the issue has some momentum. The renewal of interest, uh, especially this year, has really come from uh, the passage of the American Rescue Plan Act, or what folks are calling the ARP or the ARPA. Um, specifically, one provision of that, that uh, for states who have not expanded Medicaid to date, uh, there is an incentive included in that, um, in that act of Congress, which allows for a temporary, essentially a two-year uh, increase to the state's overall federal match rate for Medicaid. Uh, for folks who may not know, uh, Medicaid is a joint state and federal program and Wyoming's federal match rate is 50%, generally speaking. Um, so for every dollar of cost, um, you know, the state pays half and the federal government pays half. Um, and that's for our uh, entire Medicaid population. So folks who are aged, blind, disabled, um, who are on Wyoming Medicaid um, essentially receive, you know, state dollars and federal dollars as reimbursement for, for services. Um, that incentive that's in the uh, American Rescue Plan Act gives us two years of a 5% um, uh, increase to that federal match rate. Um, that we've done some, uh, some projections, some estimates on, uh, equates to, in a two-year period, about $54 million of additional revenue um, through federal funds that would come to the state. Um, so coupled with what we anticipate Medicaid expansion would cost on a two-year basis, which is $20 million, um, that would net the state, uh, we project positively uh, $34 million um, in, in savings that could be spent elsewhere uh, in other programs or saved, uh, whatever the policymakers would want to do. So, Bob, that's really the um, the reason for a lot of the renewed interest in, in Medicaid expansion from my perspective. And a lot has always been talked about and how the long-term costs could really come back and get the state. You have more people than you are projecting could get into Medicaid expansion. That could drive up costs for the state. What is the reality, do you think, that this would end up actually costing the state money down the road? It's, it's a great question and, and actually appreciate the folks who, who have that concern that say, um, you know, we, we might see greater enrollment than we anticipate. Um, that is, has certainly been the case in other states across the country that have expanded Medicaid, uh, where they uh, really uh, overshot their initial projection saying, you know, this many people would, in, we project would enroll in our state's Medicaid expansion, and, and it was far greater than that. Because of that experience in other states, over the past several years, our department has really tried to do a lot of work to um, refine uh, in-house, refine our own uh, Medicaid expansion estimates 
uh, really accounting for and using that experience in other states that uh, that underprojected their Medicaid expansion. So our our analysis, I'm very comfortable with. I think it's it's really cutting edge and and using some more advanced statistical techniques and projections uh, that we're pretty comfortable with our best guess. And it is an estimate, but our best guess of uh, enrollment in uh, Medicaid expansion in Wyoming would be around that 24. 25,000 individuals um, uh, that that we would see in in Wyoming Medicaid expansion, um, but the the point is there that if we saw additional uh, you know enrollment that would come with an additional state cost. Currently, uh, without the incentives, the federal government pays 90% uh, of the cost of Medicaid expansion, and the state uh, states have to pay 10% of those costs. Uh, like I mentioned, with the with the incentives that are in the American Rescue Plan, that changes uh, briefly on a two-year basis. Um, but in the long term, if additional folks were to enroll more than we anticipated in Medicaid expansion, uh, there could be additional state costs. Um, there's various ways to uh, to talk about and discuss how Medicaid expansion could be financed, both through uh, appropriations, through offsets to other programs that might be covered by Medicaid expansion that are currently funded by state funds. And I think those those discussions and those uh, decision points are down the road uh, because the first uh, question, for, in my mind, for policymakers to answer is, should the state of Wyoming expand Medicaid? And our department uh, has really taken a neutral p- position on that uh, because that's a policymaker decision. Stephen Johansson, again, is the deputy director of the Wyoming Department of Health. But what you keep saying, and I think this is an important point, and and I guess this is where the real policy question comes down, is as you said, there might be some options to finance this. You know this group. They don't want to have to finance something. They don't want to shift money away from other things. And, And so it's a fair concern, isn't it? It is a fair concern, and a part of the discussion that we've had with uh, the legislative committees um, and, and others, especially over the past several weeks and, and months, is um, you know essentially what can the federal government do um, to make this easier for states? Obviously, uh, we think with the with the new administration, there is um, there is a preference that the states who haven't expanded uh, expand Medicaid, and I think there's somewhat of a push for that. You see that in some of the legislation that's coming out of Congress. And I think those discussions our legislature would want us as an executive branch to have with the federal government. So how could this be easier, both on the financial side with potentially extending those incentives beyond the temporary period, which would make it easier for a state like Wyoming to finance, uh, as well as other uh, you know, discussions that we could have, negotiations we could have with the federal government around um, you know, partial expansions for you know, tar- a more targeted population, uh, avoiding you know, taking people off of uh, federally subsidized private insurance, for example, and putting them onto Medicaid has been a, a sticking point for, uh, for some decision makers. Um, based on the discussion that happened at uh, the Revenue Committee uh, yesterday or, or this week, um, I think those, there's a good likelihood that if a bill were to pass, we would be able to engage in those discussions with the federal government to see um, where are uh, the current uh, administration's flexibilities and how could that be uh, beneficial for uh, Wyoming's potential Medicaid expansion uh, or not, and then bring that back to the legislature accordingly. I also need to ask you about something else. So there's pitfalls, but there are also some huge positives. And one of the things that would happen, I, I've at least heard people say, is that you're getting people on the Medicaid expansion and and then other costs that may cost your department or hospitals or other health care providers across the state for uncompensated care. That's going to be addressed. So there, there's kind of a shifting of money there as well, isn't there? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a mixed bag. I think on the provider side, um, you know, additional uh, covered lives, as it were. So folks who may have been previously uninsured now having a pay source uh, can solve a, a lot of uncompensated care problems that we see in our hospitals. Certainly won't make it perfect. Doesn't take the problem, uh, you know, remove the problem entirely, um, but but adds an element of coverage that can uh, provide additional revenue to providers uh, across the state because you have you know 24,000 people, um, you know, with with a pay source that that can take care of some of that bad debt or uncompensated care that's provided. 
Uh, secondly, Bob, you mentioned you know other state programs that uh, that could benefit uh, or or realize you know financial efficiencies from Medicaid expansion, and we've talked about those for for years. Um, those potentially exist in the Department of Corrections, where you have uh, uh, correction clients, inmates that uh, receive care outside the walls of a of a prison, for example, go to the hospital for a a, a lengthy stay, and and Medicaid expansion could very well cover a lot of those costs that are currently being financed by the Department of Corrections. Um, that's an offset there, um, as well as uh, programs in the Department of Health. So community mental health and substance abuse costs could realize some, uh, some offsets because if Medicaid were expanded, those state dollars that are going to uh, provide services for those clients could now be reimbursed at 90% federal. Uh, and, and there you see some, you know, some financial efficiencies there. How realistic is it that uh, the state or legislators could come up with a, their own plan and, and not do a Medicaid expansion, but do something like it? I think that's a tall order um, for for the state policymakers, um, especially on the financial side, uh, just because, you know, if you think of the scale of the federal government, you know, reimbursing 90% of the cost of, of the health care for those 24,000 individuals. Hard to think of a financial and budget situation where the state uh, could really make that work to the same scale. Stefan Johansson, again, this is the Deputy Director of the Wyoming Department of Health. Always nice chatting with you. Thank you. Likewise, Bob. Thank you very much. Coming up, discussions about wind energy and grizzly bears. This is Open Spaces. This time on Human Nature, Greg and his best friend Rob dreamed of a huge Alaskan backcountry adventure together, but a wild river got in the way. So my mantra when I'm on the trail is keep walking, don't die. Reaching Rob's Roadhouse. I'm Erin Jones. Find Human Nature under podcasts at wyomingpublicmedia.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. Wyoming is famous for its wind, and a new urgency to address climate change has ramped up the number of wind projects moving in. But that spelled more conflicts as communities are split over whether to approve them. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards reports. The White's family cabin sits at the base of Boulder Ridge with a stunning view of the Laramie Valley. Today, Michelle White is canning beans, the pots rattling on the stove. But Michelle and her daughter, Mariah, gesture out the giant picture window at the prairie. Okay, so the turbines are going to completely um, blanket this entire valley all the way up to Ames Monument and all the one way... One mile in front of Ames Monument. One mile okay. in front of Ames, and it's going to go all the way to the left in front of Vitavu. They moved here to get away from the rat race in California and enjoy watching wildlife just outside this window. But a new wind project is proposed in the area, and they're worried about how birds and animals would be affected by it. Porcupines, my dogs yeah. have gotten into the porcupines. Uh, occasionally a badger. Yeah. Coyotes, I'm guessing. Oh, oh my yes. goodness. Yeah, a yeah, lot. And maybe even coyotes. maybe even a wolf. I think when we first moved out here, I found wolf prints, and I called um, really? Fishing Game and told him. And she says lots of hawks and eagles could be injured by turbine blades. A proposed map of the rail tie project shows three turbines going in less than three-quarters of a mile from their cabin. Outside of that, there could be as many as 149, each one about 50 stories tall. Mariah is one of the organizers of Why Wind Here, a growing group of landowners arguing to stop the project with increasingly urgent strategies, including testifying at legislature, organizing on social media, and even putting up billboards. The Texas company ConnectGen has been looking to develop rail tie now for two years, but public opposition has made that more complicated. That includes from the whites, who have a lot of reasons they don't want the project nearby. For one, they're worried about people's health. 
the sound and just the whole, the perpetual spinning of the blades and that flickering that happens. And, you know, I've just scanned YouTube videos for like the last two years about the horrors of people living next to these. And the project is now nearing confirmation. Public comment ends June 1st. After that, the project could be operational by the end of 2022. Mariah says when she tries to tell local officials about her concerns, she doesn't feel heard. And it really makes me sad because there's no dialogue. There's no way to talk to them and say, like, like when I pleaded with the county commissioners with the planning and zoning committee and I asked them, please, all I want is one mile setbacks. Is that really a lot to ask? One regulation. For them, it's really all or nothing um, in terms of the setbacks they've proposed, been proposing over the past year. They would eliminate essentially the entire wind project. So that makes it hard to, to reach any sort of compromise. That's Amanda McDonald, a spokesperson for ConnectGen, the rail type project's developer out of Texas. Hear that stark contrast in views? Online, those disagreements have gotten even uglier, with lots of misinformation. McDonald says a big one is that wind power isn't really green, that it takes more power to construct than it produces. When in fact, you know, that carbon footprint is offset in the first six to eight months of operations. It's falsehoods like this one that McDonald says make these projects more controversial. Spreads like wildfire through social media before anyone has a chance to correct it. Um, so that's definitely a challenge. A better place for people to communicate is through the public comment period that's open now, says one of the decision makers, Albany County Commissioner Pete Gosar. He says he's currently preparing for the vote on the project, scheduled to happen in a couple weeks. He agrees that dialogue has been hard to keep respectful in regard to the rail tie project. There's no doubt there'll be a lot of people disappointed no, no matter which way you come down on the issue. But we all have to live next to each other. For Gosar, he hasn't decided which way to vote, but is thinking hard about what the project could mean for the county's financial struggles. Albany County is the poorest in the state, and deep budget cuts from the pandemic could make it hard to pay for services like police and schools. It's a big deal. It means a lot to the budget of Albany County. Uh, we have never been really long in finances because we did not have the, the resources uh, that are extractable. But here's an opportunity to maybe change that. But Gosar says he hasn't made up his mind yet. You know, as far as I see it, I have at least 30 days and I've made no determination at this point. I'm going to take all 30 days to be as informed as I can be to make the best decision I can. But this issue doesn't stop at the local level. Jonathan Naughton is the director of the Wind Energy Center at the University of Wyoming. He says this project is bigger than any one community. He says wind could be a way to diversify the state's tax base, and companies like this one don't need Wyoming as much as Wyomingites like to think. Even states with less wind potential can now build them effectively. What the dialogue really is about here, I think, is whether Wyoming wants to be part of that or if we're going to not be part of that. And, and those are both options, and, and it's neither one is right or wrong. And then I would ask the question is, if we're not going to do wind, what are we going to do to answer some of these economic challenges in the state? The Albany County Planning and Zoning Commission has now approved the application. Next, it goes to the county commissioners to decide. The rail tie public comment period is open through June 1st. If commissioners approve it, development could begin as soon as early next year. For Wyoming Public Radio. I'm Melody Edwards. As part of our series, I Respectfully Disagree, Melody Edwards will sit down for a bread-breaking with representatives for and against the Rail Tie Project in Laramie. You can hear that conversation on Open Spaces June 4th. Changing gears, the interagency grizzly bear study team has changed a data point in their calculations for the greater Yellowstone ecosystem grizzly population. This one change shows that the population estimates on the number of grizzlies thus far have been very conservative. Wyoming Public Radio's Camila Kudelska asked study team leader Frank Van Manen why make this change now. One of the first things that the study team looked at when it was first established in 1973 was how can we best monitor this population. Um, you know, at the time, research tools were, were still somewhat limited. And so one of the things they immediately honed in on was 
to keep track of the number of unique females with cubs because females with cubs are a good indication of what the population is doing overall. Um, they're, they're the backbone of the population, so to speak. And, and so keeping track of females with cubs, the reproductive segment of the population made sense. And so a lot of effort went into that early on. That led to what, is, what we now refer to as the, the night at all rule set. This was a, basically a rule set to identify sightings from females with cubs as belonging to unique individuals, in unique family groups, so to speak. There's a number of criteria that goes, in, that goes into that determination, into that rule set. But the biggest one, the most important one, is a distance criteria. So if you have clusters of observations, you can separate them out based on distance criteria simply because we know what you know, typical movements and home range sizes are, et cetera. That allowed researchers at the time to identify how many unique females with cubs there were, and that, that number was then uh, extrapolated to a total population estimate. Now, at the time, that was still a recovering population. So there was an implicit conservative mechanism built into it. And that is that essentially at the time they said, you know, if, if we use 15 kilometers as a way to, as a distance criterion to separate observations of females with cubs, that is what the data indicated. But they said, let's double that just to be sure that we're not counting paper bears. So they just doubled it, which was very conservative, but justified at the time, simply because the last thing you want to do when you're dealing with a small recovering population is to overestimate how many bears there might be. Okay, so how did you realize, or you as scientists realize, that this estimate of population is possibly too biased? If you look at the number of conflicts that are increasing throughout the ecosystem, if you look at the expansion of occupied range that we've seen over the last decade, Whereas our population estimates started leveling off, we, we started wondering, you know, maybe because we have reached high densities, in, at least in the core of the ecosystem, maybe we're not really fully capturing that, that trend over time because we're seeing all kinds of other signs that the population might have increased a little bit more than, than we actually estimated. And what are those signs? The increase in mortalities, that's of course directly linked to, to conflicts as well. I think those combined, um, I would almost say, you know, auxiliary data that told us that that was probably going on. But we didn't know exactly how, to what degree we were underestimating and to what, how we could best correct for that. That's where these simulations with, with the actual empirical data, but you know, they're, they're kind of re-scrambled to, to mimic the real population on the ground. That work was really essential for us to to move forward. What does this change for the population, if anything at all? Given that we've been underestimating by somewhere around 45%, maybe even more, that number is going to go up quite a bit. So last year's population numbers came out at about 700-something. So that might be 1,000-something now with this new population calculation. Right. Correct. Yeah. And so um, one part of this is that it's still uh, technique itself hasn't changed that much. It's, it's just that distance criteria in the rule set. So the nice thing about this is that we can apply this retroactively and, and kind of update numbers from the past too and compared to what we had calculated in the past. And it doesn't change anything on the ground right now. No. I mean, there's this uh, obviously for for managers, to, they will probably have some discussion on, on how to interpret this, this, these new data. But I think everyone is well aware that on the ground, nothing, nothing has actually changed. And so it's just an, an issue of, okay, you know, these are different numbers. We're basically scaling up from the seven, 727 bears we estimated to be there last year to whatever, whatever the new number be, would be, but everything scales up. And an important aspect of this is, too, that our mortality estimates will likely actually be lower than we have presented in the past. Lower, simply because we, we will have a, a larger population size. That was Wyoming Public Radio's Camila Kudelska speaking with interagency grizzly bear study team leader Frank Van Manen. Thank you.
During the COVID-19 pandemic, many people started working from home. Some scientists who study plant fossils use that time away from the office to their advantage. Wyoming Public Radio's Ashley Picconi reports that it helped them learn new tools to discover some really old leaves. In a normal year, University of Wyoming associate professor in botany and geology Ellen Carano would spend about a month searching for plant fossils. Carano says the first step in the process is poring over geologic maps. Once she picks a broad area to study, she goes there. She walks and drives around looking for drab gray and brown rocks. That's because plants aren't preserved inside darker rocks. Before they became rock, they were exposed on the surface for a long time. There were worms crunching things up. There were roots growing through things. So you're not going to find plant fossils in those. After she identifies a good target, Carano digs out the biggest hunk of rock she can. And then she smacks it with a hammer. Inevitably, you're going to damage some of the fossils. And that's kind of a big difference between paleobotany and you know, like the dinosaur or the hominid paleontology that folks are more used to where, you know, like dinosaurs are rare, human ancestors are incredibly rare. So every fossil is precious. Once she finds the fossils, she wraps them in toilet paper and takes them back to the lab to study. But in the midst of the pandemic last summer, Karana wasn't allowed to do her usual research. Smithsonian research scientist Scott Wing was also not allowed to go into the field. I started feeling really homesick for Wyoming because I always go to Wyoming in the summer and I always look for fossils and it's always kind of the highlight of my year. To console himself, Wing started flying around the state in Google Earth looking for possible fossil sites. He says he became addicted to it. I started doing that and I started thinking, I think I can recognize the kinds of places that I have become used to seeing walking over one hill and looking at the next hill. You know, I think I can see some of those features on this Google Earth image. Wing marked the locations of possible fossils. And later in the summer, he finally got approval to travel to Wyoming. And I just started driving around to these places that I had marked in my GPS to see if my hunches based on the Google Earth images were were any good. And After a couple of weeks, it became clear, oh yeah, you know, about half of these are panning out. Half may not seem like a lot, but Wing says it's a much higher success rate than normal. It was important for Wing and Carano to continue studying the impact climate change has on life. They are using the fossils to explore an ancient climate change event that occurred some 56 million years ago. Wing says it can help scientists understand climate change today. It involved uh, an enormous release of carbon, something like the amount of carbon contained in in all of the modern-day fossil fuel reservoirs. And the release was, geologically speaking, quite fast. He says the climate warmed by about 10 degrees Fahrenheit and rainfall became sporadic. Carano says the size and shape of leaves before and after the event are key to measuring the change in climate. Wetter regions have more diverse plant life, and wetter regions tend to have plants with larger leaves. Carano and Wing agree that Wyoming is the best place to understand what climate change was like for organisms and how it altered ecosystems. They are using Google Earth to identify more fossil locations for their research this summer. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Ashley Picconi. In a moment, we will wrap up the program by explaining how returning to normal isn't easy for everyone. This is Open Spaces. One thing we're proud of here at Wyoming Public Media is our podcasts. Whether you're looking for a good story from human nature. I was convinced some of them are going to die. Or you want to hear our region in unexpected ways through the modern West. When women teach women, we're saving relationships one cast at a time. We've got a whole world waiting for you online. Explore under podcasts at wyomingpublicmedia.org.
Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Back. As more people across the world are getting vaccinated, talks of returning to normal are growing. This can look like attending concerts with friends to gatherings with family for the holidays. But this depiction of normalcy is not the same for everyone. Wyoming Public Radio's Nina Rao reports how one family is trying to return to their normal under incredibly challenging circumstances. Usually, Muhammad Ahsanul would be at home in Dhaka, Bangladesh, celebrating Eid al-Fitr, or Eid. This holiday marks the end of a month of fasting during Ramadan. We start with uh, prayer in the morning, uh, very early in the morning. We go to a place, uh, we gather together, we pray together, and then we embrace uh, together with gratitude. Then they'd continue to visit their relatives and friends at their homes, and eat a lot of sweets and delicious spicy food while wearing brand new outfits to commemorate the celebration. But most importantly, uh, it's about, you know, going to different places because it's a vacation. Uh, We have at least three days vacation for Eid in our country. So we generally go to our villages. If we are in town, uh, we go to different places to celebrate. Mohamed Ahsanul is currently a PhD international student at the University of Wyoming. For him and the millions of other Muslims around the world, Eid is a big deal. But Muhammad says in Wyoming, the holiday feels almost invisible. Here in the United States, I couldn't really differentiate a normal day with Ramadan, to be honest, because uh, you can clearly understand uh, uh, there is no real practice here. Last year, Muhammad's family planned to visit him in the U.S. for the first time to see him graduate with his master's degree, which coincided with Ramadan, and get a chance to travel around the nation to see what the American dream looked like. But then the pandemic happened. They couldn't really come. So I thought this summer would be a good time for them to visit me. Meanwhile, if they can celebrate the Eid, it's even better. Mohammed and his family hoped that by this time in 2021, things would look better and rescheduled their trip to May of this year. And in a way, it is. With the growing availability of vaccines, it seems like a chance at returning to normal is possible. Yet, that's not the case for him. So uh, my dad got his first dose of COVID-19 vaccine on March 5th. And then they said uh, he could actually uh, take the second dose on April 25th. So that's why I bought uh, scheduled a ticket on 28th. Mohammed's dad didn't end up getting his second dose until May 2nd. So his family had to reschedule their flight again. And they got out right before Bangladesh instituted another lockdown. This time, once again, I have reserved a ticket for them and it was almost cancelled again. A few days later, I called Mohammed to ask if his parents had left Dhaka yet. They had already arrived in Dubai and now they have boarded in the flight to New York. So they'll arrive at New York at 6.40 a.m. in the morning and then at Denver at 4.40. It was bright and sunny the next day when I met Mohammed to head down to Denver. Are you excited? It's really excited. <laughs> As we arrive at the airport, Mohammed's brother calls. His brother tells Muhammad they've landed and gives him the baggage carousel number. Muhammad fidgets in his seat and keeps looking at his phone nervously. He won't believe that they're here until he sees them. For your safety and the safety of others, you must wear a face mask. After parking, we rush to baggage claim. Muhammad walks out in front, eager to find his family. As he spots his brother first, a smile engulfs his face, and they reunite in a hug. While distracted by his brother's hug, his mom slowly approached the two of them. That's when Muhammad pulls away from his brother and embraces his mom for a long time. She has tears in her eyes. Everybody is a bit speechless, overwhelmed with emotion, and probably jet-lagged. Now do you feel relieved? Ah, yeah. As I said, I couldn't sleep 
even for a second. So it's not not really because they are coming. Uh -huh. Since th this is a risky journey, uh, if something happens to the plane, they're gone. That's that's the thing uh, going on at the back of my mind. More than excitement, it was the fear of not seeing them again. Right. But he doesn't have to worry about that anymore as his family gets in the car to drive back to Laramie. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Nina Rao. In Captain Benjamin Bonneville's Wyoming expedition, the lost 1833 report has been published by Arcadia and the History Press. The book examines the details revealed in the historic document. Wyoming Public Radio's Grady Kirkpatrick spoke with the author, Jet Connor. Mr. Connor, Bonneville's report on his first year in the Wind River country and beyond remained lost for almost a century before resurfacing in the 1920s. Is there any information on how or why it became lost? Even Bonneville knew fairly soon after he had returned to the United States for his three-and-a-half-year expedition in the Wyoming area in the far west, he knew that this first report had been lost, had been misplaced. He didn't know why. He didn't know how it happened. Uh, that report was the summary of his first year of a three-year expedition to the far west, and it focuses mostly on um, his time in Wyoming, though so the report covers quite a bit of territory because Bonneville had learned and met many people who had already been down the Columbia River, which is really what his target was, and they told him quite a bit of information. So he submitted this report as a consequence of his first year, and he had it shipped back to the United States to the commander of the U.S. Army, uh, the overall commander, a man named General Alexander Bacombe. What we know is, is that Macomb did get the report. Uh, Bonneville did not return on that trip. He stayed in the mountains. He sent it as a report to sort of say to the commander, this is the first year of what has happened, and I'm going to continue to stay here because I haven't fulfilled all the promises that I made to the U.S. Army about what I would be discovering. And he knew that it would take a year for the reply to get back to him. And so my whole point in pulling the book together is to focus on this report and really the first year of Benjamin Bonneville's uh, travels to the far west and weave the information of this report that can be found by reading it into the adventures of Captain Bonneville as Irving had reported it and try to see how well they mesh and try to see if there's new information to be gleaned. And uh, that was really the overall motive of my writing the book. Yeah, the book actually includes in the appendix the original lost 1833 report and related documents, right? That's right. I uh, Whatever documents, not maybe every one of them, but whatever documents seemed most pertinent to this particular book, including the report, are reprinted in the appendix of the book. And I did a little bit of editing on the report just because it was necessary uh, to bring it up to speed since, they were, since early transcriptions of the report were done by others. Uh, so some new information has come to light occasionally about who was participating, you know, along the way and was not named. And now we know who they were. Where and when did the first rendezvous take place? So the first rendezvous was in uh, an area near the Green River, uh, McKinnon, Wyoming today, a little town. It was organized in part by William Ashley, who really started the rendezvous system in 1825. Uh, it was also attended by Jedediah Smith, one of the famous mountain men, who at that time uh, joined up with some of the companies doing business in the West. It runs all the way, the rendezvous run all the way to 
1840. Out of all of those rendezvous, they were annual. Uh, six of those rendezvous were held on the Green River uh, near today's Pinedale, uh, Wyoming, or actually closer in some ways between Pinedale and Daniel, Wyoming, a little town about uh, nine or ten miles west of Pinedale. And uh, that Green River spot became a favorite, and it somewhat became a favorite because Bonneville, uh, when he crossed over with his wagons in 1832, he was on his way to the rendezvous that year to be held at Pierre's Hole in Idaho. He didn't make it. Um, he was late. He and another fur trader named Thomas Fitzpatrick, who was a competitor really in the fur trade business, both arrived on the Green River at about the same time. Both were late to Pierre's whole rendezvous. And so Bonneville stops and um, decides he's going to build a fort on the Green River with the intention of spending the winter there. And uh, he does build a fort of some sort, just what sort I cover in the book is debatable. Yeah, it came, it came to be known as, as Fort Nonsense, right? Yes, it became known as Fort Nonsense, and it became known as Bonneville's Folly, or even Bonneville's Folly. And it became known for that because while there was something that indeed was constructed, I think the evidence is clear something was constructed. Bonneville learned very clearly in the fall of 1832 that that was not going to be a good place to uh, winter over. And uh, and turns out that it's not. Uh, my wife happens to watch the Weather Channel very carefully uh, nationally in Daniel, Wyoming, close to where Fort Bonneville was built. Uh, this year alone has had record low temperatures throughout the continental United States. So in other words, not a very good hospitable place yes. uh, to build a fort. Yes, indeed. But in the summertime, it was a wonderful place to hold a rendezvous. Right, right. Summers are great. Captain Benjamin Bonneville's <laughs> Wyoming Expedition, The Lost 1833 Report by Jet Connor is available from Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and uh, paperback and hardback, right? That's right. Very good. Well, I want to thank you very much, Mr. Connor. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. You can hear an extended interview with the author on our website. Thanks for listening to Open Spaces. Archived editions can be found at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Anna Rader is our web editor. You can also find individual segments on that site and via our Facebook page. And you'll never miss an episode if you sign up for our podcast. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.